and welcome to The Runs, the podcast in which we talk about great runs of comic books. I'm your host, Ryan Alexander Tanner, and with me this week is academic genius Susan Kirtley, who's here to talk with me about Chris Claremont and John Byrne's classic Dark Phoenix Saga, which is Uncanny X-Men 129 through 137. So uh, to introduce Susan, Susan is the director of comic studies at Portland State University. She wrote an Eisner-winning book on Linda Berry and co-edited With Great Power Comes Great Pedagogy. She's a comics enthusiast and academic genius. Thanks for being here, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that introduction. I'll I'll appear whenever people call me a a genius. Wow. I I don't feel (laughs) deserving, but uh, thank you for having me. It's just my observation. So <laughs> it, it maybe I don't know how subjective genius is, but as objective as possible. So this is a big one we're doing. We're doing the Dark Phoenix Saga, which so I'll do the rundown real quick. So uh, it's one of those things. I think we'll talk about that a bit, that nothing ever really begins or ends properly in X-Men comics. We'll talk about that more in a minute, I think. But for our purposes, we're doing issues 129 through 137, ran through 1980. So it's arguably the most famous X-Men story ever. It's a, uh, it's a major milestone of uh, Claremont and Burns run is very iconic. Again, many would say was the, the biggest run ever. Uh, Byrne left shortly after this. So it deals with Jean Grey becoming the Phoenix and being corrupted by power, essentially. So she's the Phoenix for some time before this, but this is when it kind of things escalate and it has a tragic ending that has been robbed of all meaning over the years. But for the time it was, uh, it's a big deal. So yeah, this is, and that's one of the things too, is I'm really interested in this idea of going through full runs of things. And Chris Claremont on X-Men is one of the runs that I didn't even try at all to do that. I'm like, (laughs) there's no way I'm going to go from the beginning. So that's one of the runs we're doing in pieces anyway. So Susan, um, what is your relationship with this run of comic books? Well, I, you know, one of my, in, my introduction to comics and my great love of comics came through the X-Men. And so I have great affection for the X-Men and um, Chris Claremont and, and Byrne and this, this um, collaborative team. And so I have a lot of affection and uh you know, as an entry point into comics and kind of falling in love with comics. So um, I have a lot of, you know, nostalgia and affection. Um, With that said, I didn't read um, the Dark Phoenix series when it came out. I mean, I I read it a few years later. I was still uh, an adolescent, but I I, um, didn't read it, you know, at that exact moment it came out. But I read it as as an adolescent, adolescent, like a tween. It was interesting because I had known about Jean Grey and then coming back, kind of filling in some of the gaps and coming to a fuller understanding of the character, which I I appreciated because I I didn't, and I, I apologize to Jean Grey fans, I didn't initially love Jean Grey. Um, she wasn't like the character that I connected with. Um, and again, this was post-1986 when she had come back and so forth, but uh, and we can talk about that, but you know, she, she, uh, she, for me was too perfect. You know, it was like, she's, you know, this attractive woman with super cool powers. And I was like, uh, as a teenage, you know, sort of nerdy kid, I was like, what, what's the problem here? You know, like I really related to like beast and nightcrawler or, you know, I was like, these are the kind of characters I connect with and rogue who, 
admittedly is, is, is attractive in that stereotypical way, but she was like very tormented. Like I sucked mm-hmm. the power out of everybody. And I was like, Oh, I so relate Rogue. You know, so <laughs> those were like my people and she great. I just didn't get, you know, I didn't get or feel a connection. So um, when I started getting more serious about comics and not just pulling them off spinner accent, but trying to have a more comprehensive understanding and going back and reading dark Phoenix um, it was, it was important for me because I got a better understanding of, of her history and, and the nuances of her character. So when did you start reading Uncanny X-Men? I was trying to think about that this morning because I can't remember the exact year. It was still in Claremont's run, um, before he left. Um, but you know, it's hard for me to find the exact year because when I first started reading X-Men and comics in general, I was pulling them off the spinner racks at the no. grocery store. When yeah. I was lucky enough, my mom would take me to the grocery store and she, you know, if I helped and I was good, then I would get to pick out a comic and I gravitated to the X-Men. So the continuity wasn't there, right? Yeah. Like I would pick one and I'd be like, Oh, it's an amazing story, but it might be several months or I might end up picking up something else. So I have a hard time just finding that exact moment. And, and it wasn't until I was a little older when I actually got to go to a comic book store where you could read full runs of things. So it was later that I, I was able to do that. So I think it was probably um, around maybe 1986 is my guess. Like when between around those years, Gene was around, but you know, it was, it's probably like around 85, 86 when I started really getting more into comics. Uh, but I have a hard time with the the timing of it because it was sort of sporadic, you know, mm-hmm. like just grabbing one here and there. Yeah, that's the thing that's changed a lot. Like everything is so archived. I mean, you could just get it digitally or you can go on the app and just read through everything. But I remember that just getting what was on at 7-Eleven and then, you know, always getting part four of a seven part story. And yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, and I didn't really get it a lot of the times because you got part four. And then maybe later you get part three or something. It was just super awkward. And there's that disconnect. And then, you know, a little bit later, I started to get old enough that I could go to the comic shop um, where I would like try to surreptitiously read full runs because they didn't have like the anthologies and there wasn't like digital archive versions. It was like, hmm, can I read this? It's bagged, you know, like I would like to read all these. I can't afford it. Would you just go to the comic store and just read? what was there at the comic store? Is that how you read this initially? Yeah. yeah. I mean, like when I had money, I would buy it. And when I didn't have money, then I would be like, Oh, you know, no one will notice if I read this because sometimes they're bagged and boarded and sometimes they're not. So I was trying to make it into a library the best, you know, when I had babysitting money, then, you know, then, then I could buy things. Um, And I would buy the X titles usually. Yeah, that was very much my experience, too. There was one comic store that would just let you sit there and read as long as just go there all weekend. And then later I got them to hire me. So that was the dream. Yeah, that that was well, it was the dream until it happens. And then it was not a very good job. So I'm trying to keep track of uh, trying to just get the lay of the land. So you read this a little later. Yes, not exactly when it was published a few years later. Um, I mean, I think even then, though, people, you know, even a few years later, people recognized this was a pretty monumental um, run, a saga. It's, and, and for those six years, you know, this this death really mattered, you know, until, yeah. you know, but, you know, I mean, the stakes were higher, you know, when people thought that people could die. That, you know, that meant something, I think. 
Yeah. So I'm interested. I mean, I'm interested in talking with you about this for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is I just really like the uh, commingling of like academia and analysis and like nerdy crap. I think those are like my favorite discussions. You know, do you think that we intellectualize this stuff as an excuse for liking it? I think it's it's something of both. I think, you know, as someone who as an academic specializes in comics, you know, for a long time, comics were something that I did apart from my academic life. And the ability to bring that into my academic life has been, you know, very obviously fulfilling because I get to talk about these amazing comics. I think it's something of both. I do, I think, overanalyze and, and you know, these comics um, perhaps too much um, because I like them. But at the same time, the more I look, the more I see and the more, you know, the more you can read history through them, you can see what was happening at the time. And a lot of scholars have said this, but I would agree that I think that comics both reflect culture, what's happening at that moment in time, but I think they also shape culture. And so these attitudes and these experiences, they help create ideas and philosophies and movements in society. And so for me, being able to study that is really um, both personally fulfilling, but also intellectually very satisfying. Um, but it's interesting, I think, particularly on this run, for me, I have these different reactions because there's a very personal reaction. So like as a, as a young person reading this, my reaction was bummer, you know, like that's not a very intellect, you know, like, wow, we went through all that and she died and I'm bombed. And it was like a big kind of like bummer. And now when I was reading it again, I was thinking like, oh, is this reflective of like, you know, the schism in the feminist movement? And, uh, you know, like I was trying, you know, so, I mean, I think those things are working simultaneously. It could, it can be both representative of these different political, social movements. And it can also be a bummer, you know? Yeah. It were, I mean, it works on a lot of levels. I think Claremont's X-Men is a great example of <clears throat> you can be eight and it's cool or you can be, you know, in college and really analyze it. And you're, oh, there's actually a lot going on here. And there's aspects of this era of X-Men, which I guess is still part of X-Men ever since they, you know, did giant size X-Men that it's an international super team, which comes with like annoying phonetic accents, which I never have loved about X-Men. But also, uh, you know, it's like people from all over the world being unified by uh, being marginalized as this minority group and working together. And uh, and I do think Claire, I've read more Claremont uh, since I've started this podcast. And there is something really just deep characterization that he did really think about who these characters are and what drives them. And there's like a lot of nuance to the characters. And I appreciate having, you know, looked at these and reread them recently the um the time and care and attention um that goes into these long runs you know because you know we're, we're separating out dark phoenix but obviously as you pointed out it starts out you know these seeds are being planted about the phoenix power and all of these relationships and i really appreciate the way that he has developed this over several years you know it's 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 really masterful the way that all of these ideas are embedded and sometimes they'll kind of go dormant and they'll, t they'll deal with another fight and then it'll come back and these different relationships. And, uh, I revisiting it. Um, I, I think I appreciate that more, um, the way that it's developed over time and giving time for things to unfold. 
Yeah, it's a two-way street, though, too, because there's also, like, you know, in the middle of a storyline, there'll be a two-page interlude. It'll be like, meanwhile, this is happening with this person. Like, we won't see that again for three years. You know, there's a lot of, like, uh, planting seeds and kind of, oh, right, about what about that, you know? Absolutely. And I think, you know, reading it right now, just one after the other, I'm more able to see those. But at the time, I'm like, I don't remember. Or if you're picking it up off the spinner racks, you don't remember. Maybe you missed that seed that was planted two years ago. So I I do appreciate the ability to read them all at once and have everything accessible right now. Yeah, these really benefit from being, they really feel like they were not made for the era they were in, where you would just kind of get what you got. You know, I got 40 cents and I'm at, you know, uh, Walgreens or whatever. For me, um, I feel like I was trying to, what could I compare this to? I feel like the Dark Phoenix Saga is a little bit like the movie Titanic or something in that uh, I've never seen Titanic but I, I, I don't need to, like I could tell you, or, you know, when you're a kid, things like uh, there's certain, there's certain mo- Citizen Kane, like by the time you see Citizen Kane, you've seen all these cartoon parodies of it. And it's so big and iconic that you almost don't need to experience it yourself. Although I did appreciate reading this and I would recommend it, but that's one of the big questions of this podcast is like, did you have to be there? Was it better at the time? And I don't think this is like a you had to be there. But to me, this is like, I wish I had been there. Like, I have envy for anyone who read this monthly as it was coming out. Because mm-hmm. to not know what's going to happen, like the, I, the emotional impact of the surprises mm-hmm. around this must have been so huge. And to me, you know, by the time I had read this, it was quite a bit later. I think I started reading X-Men comics close to when you did, really. But okay. uh uh, you know, I had older brothers, and so it was always like their point of reference or things being summarized. So I actually hadn't sat down to read this all the way through until we we're until very recently. But I had read a lot of pieces of it. I'd read straight issues here and there. And uh, one thing that comes up too in this run is uh, as a kid getting to go to Costco and getting those grab bags of comics. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. those, but mm-hmm. there'd be like four really good comics facing out. And then inside was like a bunch of Stark. You'd have Spider-Ham and Alf right. comics and, you know, a power pack was always mm-hmm. in there. And uh, there's always classic X-Men in there. So a couple of these I read as classic X-Men's also. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, but yeah, I mean, this is objectively one of the great stories in comics history but uh, it's it's almost one of those things that's been impacted by its own uh, success that it's it's you can't come in cold on this. Well, no, I, I think, you know, I remember when when Harry Potter came out, like I was an adult, obviously, but I did have the experience of reading Harry Potter when it came out. And mm-hmm. I really appreciated that because I didn't know. And now when kids read Harry Potter, they know what happens and mm-hmm. they have there's no way to escape that knowledge. And I think that, you know, with the X-Men and this particular run, I think it most certainly would have benefited from that anticipation, uh, that serialized format. It's like the, like Dickens with the way people were waiting for that next installment of Dickens. Like I, I enjoy reading Charles Dickens, but I think I would enjoy it much more in little chunks yep. published once a month, the way it was originally done instead of this huge tome. And I think, um, as much as it would have been in some ways difficult to read these, to catch all the little um, clues from, you know, two years ago, at the same time, that sense of anticipation of not knowing. And there's all these little points, you know, that Claremont does so well, like 
is, is Cyclops dead? What just happened? You know, like there's that anticipation at the end of each thing. No, no, just, he's just dead on the astral plane. Don't worry about it. It's cool. You know, like there's all these little points where you're like, what? And uh, um, I think that um, experiencing that would, would be amazing. And again, I came to it just a few years later. Um, so there wasn't as much inherent tension and drama to it. Um, it was me more for a, you know, world building, particularly Jean Grey building experience. It also reminds me a little bit of the Titanic. And I, I, I feel a little nervous just talking about Dark Phoenix because it is so classic and iconic. But I personally, not as an academic, but personally, I got the feeling when I read it the first time um, and even in subsequent readings at the end thinking like the Titanic, wasn't there room on the door for everybody to hang on? Like, was there another way that this could have ended? Like, really? Did Jean Grey have to die that way? And I know that is also part of the conversation and the controversy. Could it, there was the alternate or the other original ending and so forth. But uh, that's part of my um, gut reaction of bummer. I do wish it had ended. There was another way for it to have ended. Oh, I mean, it's we can talk about it for yeah. sure. I mean, I think the, the famous quote, right, I think from editorial is like, mm-hmm. no, you don't destroy a galaxy and then get better. And I'm like, that's right. kind of fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll get into it. But you ready to get into the issues? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to start with 129. I don't know how encyclopedic you are. So Gene's been the Phoenix for like 20 issues or something, right? Mm-hmm. Was it 108 or something? I mean, it's been, yeah, yeah. Ballpark. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been, you know, maybe a couple of years of her, you know, she seemingly died and then she comes out of the ocean and she's got this new power. So and then this picks up. That's one thing I've noticed in doing some X-Men runs, Claremont X-Men runs specifically. X-Men never starts. Like, even if you read the very first issue ever of X-Men, it doesn't start at the beginning. It's like, things are always already happening in X-Men. And if you pick up any Claremont storyline, your first issues are, you're always, something's wrapping up or you're even in the middle of something. So this is right after the Proteus storyline. Right. And that's one of the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never, I've never read that one, actually. It made me want to go back because that's one of the big classics, too. Mm Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so they're with uh, Banshee. I think Banshee is the winner of most annoying phonetic accent in X-Men history. You with me on that? You know, I haven't done a comprehensive study of all of the annoying accents, <laughs> but I will uh, I will concur that it is um, definitely uh, troubling. It's yes, up, it's up there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's with Moira and then Madrox is there. I didn't know how old that character is, but he kind of becomes more peter david does a lot of cool stuff with him later i always love that power of the multiple man it's such an interesting premise for a character yes and i thought i remember i was rereading this and saying oh yeah i forgot about him you know so poor guy (laughs) well he's done all right he's become the focus of x factor yeah x factor shifted later so anyway they're they're going home and the in the blackbird it's the the core X-Men team. So this is where we get, do you know, is this the first time we get the J the Jason Wingard mind tampering with Gene? Does this start here or has this been going on? I think, um, was it one twenty five or one twenty six? We had hints of it. Mm. I think, 
Um, I think there were hints in previous issues. I am not, my knowledge is not, not encyclopedic, but I do believe there might've been hints of it in previous issues. Okay. So it's either, it's either been going on or it's, I don't know, but it's happening here. Basically uh mastermind has this other persona, Jason Wingard, and he's like uh, creating like a trashy romance novel that mm-hmm. he's using to corrupt Jean Grey. It's like a total Fabio book of like, they're on a ship and it's kind of, there's, corsets and candles and it's like this weird kind of room i think he's convincing gene that she's living the life of one of her ancestors right yes lady jane jean lady jean gray i tried to say jane gray because you know um history but yes i believe two there he's 200 years ago and they're on their way to the colonies uh wingard and uh Jean Grey and these it's this sort of weird flashback they're on the ship um I, I do think the art here is very interesting sort of delighting in the costumes and the corsetry and her elaborate pinkish purple outfit you know it's just so roughly just over the top you, like you were saying like this harlequin romance kind of vibe happening and there's lots of like clinches you know um holding her face and looking into her eyes and, oh yeah you know. <laughs> It's very uh, enticing. And then Scott's like, what are you doing, Gene? It seems like you're having a a romance novel fantasy over there. (laughs) Yeah. And then he kind of tries to bring her back into, um, you know, the actuality, reality here. Um, Yeah. It's kind of awkward. We see that they're very connected, though. I think their their relationship is so interesting. I love Cyclops as this sort of emotionally repressed God, I mean, I think that's such a well done that he's like so powerful that it's constantly restrained and his emotional state is kind of like that too. He's sort of stoic mm-hmm. leader character. And um, I don't know. I think he's, he's a great character. Um, and he, his connection with Gene really runs through this, that they have this kind of deep really, they're kind of grown up together and that uh, she's losing control of herself and he's trying to help her and, so then they get back uh, to the mansion. Charles is there. There's some, there's some uh, drama. Charles is having some tension with the team, right? Right. Yes. Um, as as he is wont to do, you know. <laughs> you know, I was yeah, Xavier. It's it's troubling, you know. They used to do. They used to just read Richards too, like back in the. And there was a cutoff for this, but these kind of uh, real harsh replies, you know. Uh, Cyclops is he says, "Professor, we are a team." Charles goes, "Quiet." <laughs> like, people snapped a lot more back in the day. You can't really do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, they're just having some drama within the team, definitely. Yeah, so they're getting settled, and then is this? So then we see the Hellfire Club. Is this the first Hellfire Club? Do you know? I don't know if the, I, I I do not know if this is the first appearance of the Hellfire Club. The, 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 I, I, it doesn't feel like it should be. I mean, I, I, I again, I'm not sure if it's a first appearance. I should have googled. I'm I'm fairly certain it's the first Emma Frost though. And she is a fascinating uh, character as well. Uh, and Kitty, we have this run like Kitty Pride, yep. Emma Frost, Dazzler. There's mm-hmm. so much. Here, I mean, apart from Dark Phoenix, you know, and Jean Grey's arc, there's a lot of interesting stuff. The introduction of Kitty Pride, um, but yes, we'll go back to it. And we have the the Hellfire Club and the scheming to, uh, you know, use Jean Grey and her power. I guess. 
Yeah, and then they're also um, gonna meet this new mutant who's Kitty Pride. So she's yes. younger. Um, so I noticed this in Paul Smith's run, but uh, John Byrne does this too. That Kitty Pride, she's younger. You know, she's like the new generation of X Men. So she's kind of even younger than the original X Men were when they're introduced, because they've really gone far away from being teenagers at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Kitty, there's just a lot of uh, attention paid to like the posters on her wall and what does her room look like? Like they're really going for it with her as a uh, as sort of representative of the audience, I think. Yes, and I I appreciate that. Um, There's a couple of pages there where you see her room, as you point out, there's posters on the wall. There's like a a sad eyed teddy bear with a big bow, little creepy (laughs) clown figures. It reminds me a little bit of Adrian Alfana and Ms. Marvel, like where they embed so many cool little details that really build the character and Mm -hmm. the world. So I I personally really enjoy that. just going all in and you get a sense of of Kitty um, and and the fact that she's 13 and a half. Yeah, she's got a kiss poster. And yeah, I always think that too, like that's one of the hard, there's so many jobs to draw comics and one is like having to be a set decorator is such a challenge, you know, but I guess working with the writer, you can kind of collaborate on that. But what's in Mm -hmm. Kitty's room? It's interesting to think about. But so Emma Frost and the X-Men are both showing up and trying to enlist Kitty to the right. yeah, or they're checking her out at least so then uh we got aurora storm and kitty are talking at a malt shop and they're gonna have a whole relationship over time so this is kind of the start of that i think claremont was really good at going like what are these two characters dynamic and relationship and what about these two like um so right away he kind of picks up on storm and kitty having a uh not she's almost like motherly to her mm-hmm and then yeah uh, there's definitely that sort of mother mentor friend i mean she's obviously older but um i like there's a there's an image of them like in the malt shop eating their ice cream and it's it's very sweet really you know and then wolverine's reading dirty magazines so that's interesting to throw that in yeah and playboy yeah he's got his hat on he's yep yep (laughs) and uh so then you know as as is want to happen some guys in robot suits come in and interfere Uh is uh you know sometimes just trying to have a malt can i just have a malt without some guys in robot suits so they're doing pretty well against the robot suit guys with an emma frost uses her powers and and defeats everyone it's wolverine and colossus and storm are all get taken out and kidnapped by the hellfire club they were they did go down pretty quickly and i mean she defeats them handily um and they zoom away yeah yeah it's like a one panel one panel victory yes yes serves the story and then uh kitty stows away though so she's Unbeknownst to the Hellfire Club, Kitty is on their ship too as they're being taken away. That's the end of that issue. Issue 130, we meet Dazzler. So there's lots to say about Dazzler, I think. Yes. And and the introduction of of Dazzler and um, you know, both Kitty and Dazzler are a lot of fun. Um, but you know, she Dazzler feels different um from a lot of characters because she's an established successful human, you know, like, I mean, you know, she's also a mutant, but you know, she has this career and um, ultimately it's like, nah, I don't need to be, you know, part of the X team right now. I'm good. Yeah. So. But I also think she's always been weird to me. She's like maybe um, at least among the most dated Marvel characters. 
Like she's been hard to, she can't still be the disco roller skates mutant. Like that's kind of not aged well. So I think they've kind of tried to make her change with the times a little bit, Mm -hmm. but she seems to be the most fad driven of all the X-Men characters. That's always been a little distracting to me. You know, it's it's an interesting the way we were talking about history colliding with, you know, personal recollection and her sort of origins as this very much disco, you know, like inspired in her outfit and her roller skates and her singing. It It's uh, difficult to continue along in that trajectory as yeah. a character. So, yeah. Especially since in Marvel Comics fashion, they're kind of late to the like disco's kind of like really. It's 1980. It's kind of like people are over it and they go, oh, here's the disco character. Yeah. And I always feel like Dazzler is kind of thrust onto the audience. Like she had a mini series or she had a Marvel graphic novel, maybe. And I didn't, is she, was she a popular character or was she like a character that Marvel decided would be popular? You know, that's a good question. I don't have insight into the powers that be, but I can say that <laughs> I have, um, you know, met many super fans of Dazzler. Oh. So there, I think there is a strong contingent of, of folks who really, really love Dazzler, you know? So um, she has her, her contingent, I think. I'll take it. So this, <laughs> this issue is pretty quick to summarize. We have your yeah. captured mutants and Kitty's kind of waiting in the wings. You get some exposition. Uh, she helps out. Uh, Scott and Jean are, uh, trying to locate Dazzler. Jason Wingard is uh, doing more mind stuff. So Jean becomes the Black Queen for the first time. She's got her corset and whip. And I have always heard that uh, the Hellfire Club is sort of representative of some uh, proclivities that Chris Claremont has. You get a little glimpse into his private life. Well, I, I find this interesting because you have in the previous issue... She's in this super frilly pink over the top ruffly dress. And then the transition into the, um, you know, this bondage S&M dominatrix style with, you know, corset and the boots and the cape, et cetera, is pretty striking. You know, even within like one or two panels, she's all covered up in this sort of wedding ensemble kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden she is, um, the Black Queen unveiled, and I, it, I, I find that the the art it really, I think um, they really enjoy these dark phoenix Black Queen uh, images. Not just, I mean, obviously there's the the costume, but also her expressions. You know, she just looks so satisfied and happy. And as a reader, as, as a as a teenager. I was really drawn to these images of the black queen and the dark Phoenix because she really seemed more interesting. She, you know, a lot of times I think in the past, Jean Grey was like the female character and didn't really have that um, personality that I, as much as I was hoping for. And she really seems to be coming into her own as the black queen. She's smirky. She's sassy, you know, um, and, and it, they really relish these images of her. And when you see people talk, you know, we see discussions of Dark Phoenix online and everything. The images that people pull out are always these sort of either the uh, Black Queen images or the Dark Phoenix, where her face is just sort of um, so expressive and dark and, and just seems to be loving it. So uh, this one is, I think, interesting that she's transformed into the Black 
uh, queen and, and seems to really relish it. Well, so what do you make of that? I mean, if we have this narrative, we have this character who's been, uh, you know, this woman in the X-Men since the beginning, she was the original entry point character ever. And then, uh, essentially this is about her, uh, unleashing her power, like becoming so powerful that it's no longer manageable and sort of enjoying it, but also ultimately being destroyed because of it. It's complicated. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we love about comics is being able to debate it, the complications of it, because some people say she was possessed by the Phoenix power. It's not really Jean. And mm-hmm. other people will say, actually, this is a part of her personality that has been repressed by society, by convention, by, you know, and I think there's evidence for both points of view, because, you know, there are points in the story where she's like, oh, this power is telling me to do something and I don't want to, but there are other moments in this run where she's like, actually, I really like this. Mm -hmm. I like this feeling. And so I think you can make arguments in both uh, directions. Simply as a reader, I, it was, I, I think I liked, you know, I liked her embracing her anger because I felt like, you know, a lot of times it's justified. Like, well, and we'll get into this. I mean, she's being manipulated. We'll get to that in another, you know, by Wingard. She's been manipulated by Professor X mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Her power has been dampened, limited. And so I, I think, you know, as a reader, I'm like, I kind of like, I'm, this is pre, you know, destroying whole planets. But, you know, it's like letting that righteous anger out. It seems to suit her, I guess. Yeah. I mean, do you read it as allegory at all? Uh, well, you know, you know, I was doing some research and, you know, some people will read it as allegory. Some people will read it as, you know, again, a, a reading of political movements, social mm-hmm. movements of patriarchal repression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I see all of those things. I think, you know, that's maybe that's my English professor coming out. I'm like, as long as you have the evidence, you can make a case for this reading <laughs> of the text. So sometimes I have to distinguish like my gut as a, you know, tween reading it you know it's like bummer um and the and the person who's like hmm, there are interesting allegories or you know so um i think you can read it in a lot of different ways but um visually definitely um there's a lot of like she seems to be relishing these moments as the black queen in a very interesting way which is interesting because there's a couple pages where she's really loving being black queen and then we get the um, juxtaposition a page later of Dazzler in her white jumpsuit <laughs> being the epitome of disco, if if there is such a thing. And I've never really understood Dazzler's powers either. She can like generate lights, basically, right? Like she can translate sound into lights. You know, I I again, I'm sure that that Marvel has given us language to talk about it. I'm looking at the text right now. Um, you know, I, I, I was like sparkle fingers, you know, sparkle yeah. power, like dazzle power. I don't, I'm sure there's language to talk about exactly what she is doing because they love that, that you know, like making up. I'll have to read, I'll have to read the back of her trading card. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. um, that was what we used to do back in the day. So that's about it. I mean, this issue is essentially just a throwdown between uh, Hellfire Club minions and the X-Men. X-Men come out on top. Issue 131 opens with, I always love when it opens with big 
floating heads. I never, never am disappointed when I open a Marvel comic and there's people's floating heads around the frame. I think that's always a good, good opener. And Kitty Pride's being pursued. Uh, Jean Grey intervenes. She's got her Phoenix powers going. Then, um, yeah, it's a lot of pursuit. Yeah, I think, you know, you think about Dark Phoenix, you don't think about all that leads up to it, which is, you know, Kitty Pride and and being captured by the Hellfire Club and a lot of running around, um, being pursued, um, being captured, escaping, being pursued. There's an awful lot of that happening over these um, issues. Yeah. So Kitty frees Wolverine, which is also, again, they're going to have a pretty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, complex relationship over time. And that's a good kind of setup for that too. Um, and then, yeah, the team, the, the rest of the team plus Dazzler, they roll up on the Hellfire Club and there's just a big throwdown. We get the original uh, Gene versus Emma battle, which is right. something we've seen over and over again in different contexts over the years. I never thought of that because I was a big fan of Grant Morrison's run on mm-hmm. X-Men. Well, you know, it's got some issues. I'll probably get to it sooner or later in these podcasts. But mm-hmm. um, that's sort of my X-Men in a way. And uh, I didn't know that there was so much precedent to conflict between Gene and Emma. I mean, there's later on, right? Doesn't Gene die and she takes over Emma's body like 10 years later? I mean, they have a very long history. And I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, tension around them that create the tension because they have similar powers mm-hmm. you know that like versus like uh kind of thing and here i just found a description of of uh in fact dazzler is drawing on the sounds around her and converting them into radiant energy she creates a light so so intense and beautiful that the guards minds can't cope with it in other words they are dazzled mm. so that that is um how they describe her power in this throwdown um again um with uh, the group and, and, oh, there's a great, some great images of uh, um, dark Phoenix on, on, you know, fighting with Emma and she's looking much darker than uh, Emma, you know? Yeah. It's coming out. And then this is a weird, as these issues progress, it's weird because the X-Men defeat the Hellfire Club and then they leave and then they like come back and fight them again a couple issues later. Yeah. It's like a yeah, weird like, coming and going multi-part. Did we do this? Like, yeah. Did we already do this? You also have Colossus and Wolverine wandering around in their underpants, which is comical. Can't get enough of that. Battle. Um, <laughs> well, so uh, maybe part of the logistics of it is then Kitty has to go home. So then yeah. they bring Kitty home. Kitty's dad is all mad and actually Gene manipulates him to uh, not be upset about the whole thing, which is, again, another kind of Im- implication that maybe Gene's not making the best decisions. Right. The red flags, uh, Storm and Cyclops are like, did she just manipulate these parents into what? You know, so, um, yeah, red flags at the end of that. And there, yeah, there's a lot of exposition speculation. Like, it seems like this uh, Phoenix power may be heading in the wrong direction here. So <laughs> Yeah. So then we get uh, 132, they fight the Hellfire Club again. We open with uh, Warren Worthington just kind of hanging out. We meet Candy Southern, a pivotal X-Men character. That was one thing uh, Claremont would do is there would be like these relationships with regular people sometimes. And Uh they would kind of disappear later. I don't know if they're resolved. But so they're out wherever 
Warren Lee lives. There's a really lovely sequence, I think, of uh, which has been revisited, I think, in later storylines. I think Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men did a take on this sequence, but where Gene is uh, holding back Scott's powers and then mm-hmm. they're like making out on a um, some sort of a stone. I don't know what that's called, a, a mesa. I don't know what that's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. A plateau, but that's really a cool sequence i don't know that they get to have that moment and he gets to take his visor off and yeah well and i and it, and they're setting the scene also like they're, they're raising the stakes so when they're separated you know they have this sort of tender moment and then we're gonna take it all away from you because she's gonna she's gonna die but yeah. there's also this idea like um is she becoming more sort of sexually liberated because she's initiating this this intimate moment is she going to be punished for that? Again, I'm doing my English professor thing, you know, because she's like becoming more sexually liberated. And then it's like, uh oh, can't stand for that. We're going to have to kill you. So I guess we'll save it for the end. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to evaluate that. Like it's both this uh, this unsuppressed, you know, powerful woman, but then she's like punished for it at the end. So I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. we'll, we'll try to dissect that yeah. at the end. Yeah. But so we get uh Kurt and Wol- Kurt and Wolverine, Nightcrawler and Wolverine is another two character dynamic that I just love. You know, he's so good at Claremont is so good at writing these dynamics between characters. So they're in the sewers. They're getting ready to infiltrate the Hellfire Club. Uh, we meet some other characters, Leland, uh, Sebastian Shaw. I think this is the first Sebastian Shaw. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we see some. Uh, yeah, this Jason Wingard fantasy. He's just doing it right in front of Cyclops now. He doesn't even care. Right. And, yeah. and yeah, as a reader, I was like, how is this working? You know, like she thinks she's someplace. How is this working? But yes, he's, you know, they're dancing at the Hellfire Club and she thinks that she's back 200 years and this is her husband. And uh, uh, right. He's just sort of taking over at this point. And by the way, I also love Wolverine and the and uh, Nightcrawler in the sewers. The, yeah. Those are just such great images, that art right there. I love that. But yes, we're back in the Hellfire Club. And uh, then she's turning into the to the Black Queen. But I've learned from Marvel Comics that the sewer is like these uh, these round round uh, corridors with like really intricate wiring and technology all through the. <laughs> oh yeah. In case, yeah. In case you've never been in the sewer, that's what it looks like. So yeah, she full on becomes the Black Queen, blasting people with laser hands. There's a really kind of a instant classic conflict between Colossus and uh, uh, Sebastian Shaw, who can absorb kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. So if you hit him, he can redirect that energy back at you. That's a cool one. And uh, yeah, essentially, it's the X-Men versus the Hellfire Club and the X-Men get defeated. Except for Wolverine, still in the sewer. So this is, so that's the, you know, that's the, uh, the uh, uh, climactic, ending i would i almost think wolverine coming out of the sewer i almost think that's the single most iconic image ever in x-men comics wow bold i, know, I, I don't bold. know how i would choose that's bold it's a well, great image though. what's what's your take on i mean what what would be the competition you think ah oh, geez well i don't know i mean i I mean, I love that that image, but um, maybe because I'm reading this run, there's all these great, you know, I am Phoenix moments where mm-hmm. she's you know, becoming the dark Phoenix. And those are get repeated over and over again. Um, but I don't I don't know. There's too many. 
yeah, there's a, there's a couple of Jim Lee images probably that might be in there, but um, I don't know. I just feel like that single image has just had such a life, but yeah, the cover of the last issue we're going to talk about is yeah. probably up there too, or I don't know, but yeah, that's a huge one. I mean, that's a real striking, like classic image and really cool moments of development for Wolverine as a character too. He's been around for three or four years at this point, right? Yes, and I do love the the next you know uh, issue Wolverine alone, where he just gets to cut loose um, and in all his Wolverine ness. Although that charm that we love about him, which you know just the fun colloquialisms and all the personality, really comes comes out in in this um, issue. I think so. One thirty three. Yeah, he just comes in and murders a lot of people. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> Murdering henchmen and uh, saying sassy lines while he does it. Yeah, I mean, he's calling them twerps. It's just, it's so Wolverine delightful. You know, all the, you know, all these reasons that so many of us love him as a character. Um, and it's a great example of the dialogue paired with, you know, wonderful images of Wolverine and his distinctive style that he really gets to shine here. I've been perplexed, though, by the ongoing popularity of Wolverine, because I feel like so much of it was the way he was characterized by Claremont, that he was very mysterious and he's this sort of like feral, tough guy. But then he has all these other aspects to them or they would always meet characters and he would have a history with them. Like there was always this like vast life experience this character had that you get glimpses of. And that's completely gone away. Well, I think, you know, these days it's hard because a lot of the the um, things that I love about Wolverine, they get lost or conflated because of the movies. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know what I mean? It, it, it's hard to unsee what you've seen for the movies or separate them and so forth. So um, I, it was really fun for me to reread these. And I recommend that people do because you get to see that kind of uh, Wolverine-ness in full force, which I really enjoyed yeah he's killing a lot of people but he says that he's clobbering the twerps and calling them bub and <laughs> um and there's these great you know things where he's like launching himself through the the uh, frame and it's it's just a lot of uh fun i think this particular well just really like cool tough guy sequences like it's down to one last uh henchman and wolverine just basically talks him into dropping he's like you gotta try to come at me with that gun or you want to just drop it and the guy's like forget it i give up like that's such a cool tough guy scene and funny yeah that humor is i think essential to his character too so we get, um, oh yeah, we got a pretty troubling, you couldn't Ooh. do this now. I don't know how are we going to address this. Yeah, the scene, the the flashback where she sees everyone in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, there's a scene where Jean uh, is still being mind, you know, ma- mastermind is controlling her and she sees her compatriots in like, what, you know, 200 years ago garb and they, the uh, three men are like, you know, so soldiers or, you know, Americans, um, you know, colonialists and uh, Storm as she sees as a slave. And then she ends up berating her and slapping her. Yeah. And this is so hard to read. And, and, and that's one of the things, like, I, I feel like frustrated with this run. And I, I, 
I want, I feel like they need to have a conversation about this later, you know, because they have this whole history talking about being sisters and supporting one another. And, and I'm, and I don't know, cause again, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of X-Men, but I do want to actually do some research and ask others, is this ever addressed? I don't know. Do you know? I mean, like, it feels like it really should be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I believe that because Jean dies at the end of this. And I believe that when she comes back, it turns out that none of this was her. Right. True. Yeah, it's not. It was like she's actually asleep in a kind of sleep coma thing. And this was like another version. So, right. In 1986, it's like, oops, that wasn't Jean Grey after all. So I guess that's one way out of this but it's also a real times of change. You just couldn't do this now. Like you just couldn't. I mean, you just it would the Internet would explode if you had a sequence. But also if they were in a 1700s uh, facsimile of it, it would be contextually um, feasible that that would be storm's role at that time which of course is awful but it's there's an authenticity to it to history which is a a shame about history but so i don't know it's interesting it's hard to discuss these things of i mean i just wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole if i was the writer or something but um it is it's authentic to the history that's being represented so that's tricky right it's just so hard to see a character that you have affection for behaving in this way and, 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 uh, and have it not ever be as long as, I don't know, you know, sort of addressed. And again, maybe it's not the real gene and so forth and so on and so on. But um, yeah, this, this whole scene is really, really, again, troubling. And I think, you know, you could also, if you're, if I'm looking at it from English professor ways, you could look at it in terms of critiques of the feminist movement mm. in which white feminism is being accused of um, being essentialist and not recognizing and being advocates for um, people of color, of women of color. Um, and that was a real critique of feminism. And so uh, that's another lens through which I was reading it. Like, you know, she's acting as this, you know, um, white woman with privilege. And um, so I think there's, it, it, it's interesting also in the context of the history of feminism and, and sort of, you know, now there's an idea of intersectional feminism, right. being an advocate for women, um, all women, um, particularly being aware of um, women of color. And so I was thinking about it through that lens, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's just, there's no way around it. It's awful. Yeah. Well, and also that, um, I mean, I think Claremont's writing of Storm in general is also one of the great achievements of his run. Like Storm is such a complex Mm -hmm. character and she's an African goddess, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that I'd rather see that than this, you know, in her uh, 1700s representation. But yeah, it's just tricky. It's a messy sequence. And I'm surprised it hasn't been called out more. I mean, I definitely was like, whoa, when I read this. But it's also like at the time, probably people didn't really even react to it very much at all. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things like this in comics where um, reading it now, I am. I mean, I, I, I. I don't remember reading this at the time, but uh, reading it now, I'm deeply disturbed. But, you know, there's other examples where um, really troubling things didn't really 
cause too much of a stir. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the scene of um, the incident off the subject, but, you know, Carol Danvers, the, the rape of Carol Danvers, which, you know, was called out. Claremont actually tried to rectify that situation and talk about it a little bit um, in, in terms of that story. But, you know, in terms of like the actual comics, no one ever has used the word rape. Mm. or sexual assault well when was uh, that i don't know that i don't know uh, that one. Uh, oh well i don't want to digress too much but you know she was um carol danvers was like mind controlled and convinced that um, someone altered her mind so she thought that she fell in love with someone but it was actually her son who impregnated her and she had a, a child and all the x-men were like well that's super uh have fun go off with this guy and and then later um, you know, some people called it out and said, that's, that's not okay. But by and large folk, you know, there wasn't a huge outcry, but there were some folks who um, pointed out this was not okay. And Chris Claremont had Carol say to her team, Hey, you guys weren't there for me um, and try and sort of um, address it. But I do wish sometimes there would be more naming of things like this is assault. Yeah. Um, and, and also, you know, what Wingard is doing, I mean, this is assault and and what actually Xavier does is is abusive to enter her mind and change her powers and you know there's a lot of things that go on that are not necessarily um, acknowledged um, in comics. There's a yeah. lot of nice stuff. Sure, I mean I think if you read anything from yeah. any time <laughs> earlier than yeah. ours, you know, like I always cite like the rampant homophobia of the '90s, where it was just totally normal to just casual homophobia is in everything and then eventually everyone said hey don't do that anymore um so yeah yeah so but i hear you yeah yeah but again um people sometimes will say to me how can you study comics aren't they you know sexist and racist and i'm like well uh i you know literature is mm-hmm. you know <laughs> there are racist sexist homophobic you know elements in you know, you can't look at Shakespeare or other, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that is similarly um, a troubling. I keep using that word. It's troubling. That's like an understatement. But, you know, there's a lot of um, issues in all of literature, in movies, in film, in society. And so I think it's important to talk about it. I would say, too, I don't want to say I'm defending this sequence, but it's a low point. I mean, it's not like, Oh, look how cool Jean is that she's racist. You know, it's a low point in that she's being corrupted and she's living out this corrupt fantasy and she's by she's it's, it's meant to be a moral low. So yeah, it is definitely showing you thought black queen was bad. Oh, wait, we'll show you how far she is. Yeah. It is definitely a low point for the character. But I guess we'll just move. We we condemn this sequence. Yes, so, absolutely. As we move on. So, yeah, we just get a bunch of uh, we got an aside. This is an interesting exposition aside where Banshee and Moira are like, yeah, that Phoenix, she's real. She's real powerful. That's uh, that's what's going on right now. And it's uh, and then also Warren and Charles are. I believe talking about it, too. Right. There's just a bunch of sort of exposition of evaluating the circumstance from other characters. Right. Which I appreciate, again, taking time to look at it from different angles, but it does break up the um, trajectory of the narrative. Um, and then you've got poor Cyclops in the astral plane. 
I like that he enters the 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 fan, the romance novel. He's like, all right, I got my corny hat and my sword, and I'm gonna uh, battle this on its own. I like too the visual of his eyes shadowed by his hat, which is kind mm-hmm. of his cyclops thing. And Wolverine's coming in. Oh yeah, so this though I was very annoyed by when you talk mm-hmm. about the waiting a month. So. Uh-huh. Cyclops gets skewered by uh-huh. Jason Wingard in the the mental battle. So the issue ends with Nightcrawler exclaiming, "Cyclops is dead!" And you go, "No, I got to wait a month to find out what happened. Cyclops is dead. That sucks." Issue one thirty four. First thing that happens, Nightcrawler says, "Cyclops is alive," and that to me is a ripoff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I was reading that too, and I, in terms of selling uh, comics, it was a bold move. But um, yes, it's like, oh, never mind, he's just fine. I give that the thumbs. I was like, why why do that at all? There's not even an explanation. It's not like, oh, he was momentarily dead, or oh, he had to psychically reclaim his body. It's just like, oh no, he's alive after all. Right. You know, people sometimes, you know, critique soap operas, but this is a very soap opera moment, you know, like he's dead. Oops. You know? Yeah. But yeah. So then we just get a big old fight. It's just a lot, a lot of fighting. It's X-Men versus uh, Hellfire Club for like the sixth issue in a row. I like when Wolverine is attacking the guy who can manipulate mass and he just like instinctually increases Wolverine's mass, but he's like falling on him. So it uh-huh. works uh-huh. against him. That was, I don't know. There's something clever about that, that you would sort of wrongly use your powers out of panic in a moment. Um, <clears throat> I would always be preoccupied though, by things like this. It's like, is Wolverine's mass just increased forever or is it momentary? Like did, I always wonder like if characters powers wear off or how does that work? It's a very good question. Well, we'll never know. But so then we get uh, Hank McCoy, the Beast. He's an Avenger now. He's hanging out at Avengers Mansion and he gets the uh, he gets word of what's happening. So he goes to join in the conflict. And then this is really cool where Jean finally confronts Mastermind and she basically like uh, merges his consciousness with the universe (laughs) and it like totally destroys him. Yeah, I really, I actually really, really like this um, issue number 134. I like the scenes with um, Beast, um, you know, because you see his loyalty to the X-Men rushing back, even though he's an Avenger. I really, um, and then you see um, Jean Grey as, as Dark Queen Phoenix. There's some wonderful art where she kind of embraces this dark side and just destroys Wingard Mastermind because she has been able to see through his um, lies, which we should point out were aided by Emma Frost and she just destroys him. And there's some wonderful art there um, where you see her looming over him in shadows and it's just gorgeous art. And these are, you know, these are the moments as a young reader, I was like, Ooh, wow, she's cool. And And like, I feel like her anger, or at least I felt like her anger was justified. This guy has been messing with her and obviously, you know, killing him isn't the answer, but her, that rage, like I'm sympathetic to that. Like he has been violating her. And then she just basically melts his brain by merging it with some sort of godlike consciousness. There's another great image where she's sort of, you know, um, you know, merging him with this godlike power. That's what he wanted and some great art, you know, showing this power 
close up on his eyes and just how he can't handle that. And then she kind of walks off and she's like, Oh yeah, I did that. You know, she, he, she, yeah, there's this great psychedelic, huge panel. Um, He's got a very Todd McFarlane hand. It's like a very exaggerated kind of abstracted hand. And then that's like what every Todd McFarlane hand looks like. It's coming at the reader and it's got the Mm -hmm. fingers coming towards you. But yeah, that's a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, but then they leave, and then Jean's like, "Oh no, I'm super crazy powerful Phoenix now." Talk about another one of the famous images, you know, where she says, "Hear me, X Men," and it calls back to that other part where she became the Phoenix, but now she's Dark Phoenix, and she says, "Hear me, X Men. No longer am I the woman you knew. I'm Fire. I'm Life Incarnate now and forever. I am Phoenix, and it's the Dark Phoenix." Um, what a great, great um, image that is. Yeah. It's a really cool one. Yeah. And, and ominous. And it's, you know, they think that they've gotten out of this one conflict mm-hmm. and it's actually a larger one. That's another one too. this cover where uh, cover 135, where she's, mm-hmm. I guess, gigantic standing over them. I always don't understand why like characters are tiny on cover. It's like a visual metaphor, but mm-hmm. she's crushing the X-Men logo. Um, yeah. Dark Phoenix. So she blows up the Blackbird. They're all in Central Park. And this is another one, right? They're just fighting the whole issue, right? Yeah. Yep. And it's, I think, uh, you know, it's showing how powerful she's become, uh, again, great cover witness, the birth of a God, really amazing art. And she's just taken the X-Men down, you know, we get a brief subplot where, uh, Sebastian Shaw is talking to, uh, is that Senator Kelly? So that's setting up yeah, some stuff that'll yeah. happen later. Yep. And I don't know when, but that'll be a while, I think, before we get into that, but yeah, and then I really like when they do this stuff where you see like the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and the Silver Surfer are all kind of like, oh man, there's really some stuff going on. <laughs> I love the cameos. Yeah. You know, the spider sense is tingling and you, you've you got the thing coming out of the shower in his bathrobe with the yeah. shampoo on his, I was going to say hair, but his head, you know, um, <laughs> great cameos. And they're all like, what, what, what's happening? I said, you know, this disturbance in the force juxtaposed with this image of a dark phoenix flying upward and you look at her face and her hair just that gleeful you know you know joy in it i want to talk a little more though about the thing shampooing his head <laughs> do you think his rocky do you think he has to moisturize it or something i never thought of it i i you know i have no idea maybe it's a special formulation for the thing i don't know and he has like his his bathrobe is sort of this purple and pink color, sort of interesting texture. Just, it's such a delightful um, image. And, and the fact that he has the, what is it? He, he says, I was just getting all nice and lathered up when I heard, you know, the, the red alert. So there we are. I just, I, the thing's physiology. There's a lot, a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> Indeed. But, but yes. yeah, and I like that, uh, they get Beast and Angel in there. They get some original X-Men involved mm-hmm. in this scenario. It's kind of a cool idea. Oh, yeah. So this is where then she takes off. So this sequence, mm-hmm. i got to say, I mean, that's one way comics have really, really changed is things are so decompressed now. You get so much more. You got so much more for your 40 cents than you do for your 399 in terms of mm-hmm. story, you know. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> this was one thing where she goes and flies off to another galaxy and then she destroys the she consumes a sun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, she destroys a whole solar system. And then what are these creatures? There's some, I don't know if they really describe them, but there's some sort of weird blue beings. Yeah. Yeah. They're in a city, though. They're like an intelligent, I mean, not that it'd be better if they were all just, you know, uh, wild animals. But um, I guess, though, that sequence of her consuming a solar system, I thought it should be more than three pages long. Right. Yes. I mean, it's very condensed. I will say what you do have is beautifully drawn. Mm -hmm. It is beautiful. Uh, The the sort of otherworldly trajectory, what we have, but for such a significant moment, it does seem a little rushed, you know, a lot rushed. Because it's the point, I mean, I think three pages is a lot at this time in, you know, Mm -hmm. comics storytelling. But yeah, it's such a, like a game changing of, it's the difference between like, oh man, Gene's really dealing with some stuff to like, oh no, Gene is actually like, there's no, there's no even comparing, no one else has destroyed a solar system, you know, it's like, think about it. It's a big leap. Yes. She just destroys everything. And the Shi'ar are like, oh man. This is a big problem. Right, right. They are alerted that that uh, this is going to be an issue. And uh, I think that's how, you know, that's how it ends. You know, the, the Shi'ar are saying, whoa. And the X-Men are like, yeah, she's hungry. She's consuming worlds at this point. Yeah. So then we get to 136 is, uh, it's the second to last issue of this, right? Yeah. And then yeah. the last issue is a double issue. Mm-hmm. But so, uh, yeah, some more great images the Shi'ar are having like a space council. Like, what are we going to do about this? This is really, uh, yeah. this is, this is not cool. You get uh, Jimmy Carter. I, I know. Love, yeah. <laughs> cool <head of> Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and he, he too, uh, apropos of the series has kind of an annoying phonetic accent. He's, he says, uh, he's talking to Mr. Jarvis, Jarvis, the uh, Avengers. Uh, I want the Avengers ready to deal with it. And the Avengers never do anything except for the beast. Right. Right. But they're leaning into this sort of folksy peanut farmer vibe for, (laughs) for, for Jimmy Carter. Um, And, and this also has one of these really poignant moments when in this issue, she comes back and Jean Grey, dark Phoenix visits her family, Mm -hmm. um, which is so sad, um, you know, because they don't just can't connect. Um, and, And those are also really visually interesting. Um, she kind of, the way that she's drawn, sometimes she looks very much like, uh, a, I don't want to say innocent, but, a you know, a Jean Grey sort of sweetness. And then, um, vacillates into these images of her face. Almost, she looks kind of vampiric to me, you know, yeah. some of these, she has the dark eyes and her teeth almost look fang-like. She looks yeah. so malevolent. It's well done, like her psychological shifting and the way mm-hmm. it's visually represented by the way she's run. And also, I feel like this is a thing that's really gone away, too. I mean, I don't know how much we've seen Jean's sister just lives at home and doesn't mm-hmm. know she's a superhero. And But I don't know if you ever see, like, human family members of anyone anymore. I feel like that's... I was surprised by this sequence because it's so out of place for what's been done in the last 30 years. And just this question that her mom holds onto her shoulder and says, you look thin, Jean. Are you eating enough? 
right? Like she's just eaten an entire (laughs) world. And her mom is like, you sure you had enough? Like, and she's like, I'm fine, mom. I know, it's so great. I don't know if that was an intentional joke, but yeah. It's pretty good. And you almost would say that was the moment that pushes her over the edge, you know, like the the, uh, condescending mom presence is just too much for her. Yeah. Yeah. So then the X-Men show up, they put on a, a power disruptor and then they just throw down. They're just all trying to stop her, including the beast. Yeah. Yes. And they put this, you know, Nightcrawlers put this little crown power dampener thing and and she asks, um, Jean asks Wolverine to finish me with your claws. I beg you. Yeah. Uh, but That's then, intense. Yeah. yeah. And then she's over it. She takes off the power dampener and says, you know, what a pity, you know. She, uh, they keep having these moments where they could wrap it up. I mean, that's a cool aspect of the story, though, that they're like, well, it's Gene, though. It's like, can't just murder Gene. Right. So they're exploring solutions. So what do you, you seem like you had a deep read? Because then she has basically a psychic duel with Charles Xavier. Yeah, you know, that's tr- tough. You know, and she has these lines where she's saying, um, uh, you know, she's like, I hunger, Scott, for a joy, a rapture beyond all comprehension. That need is a part of me, too. It consumes me. Uh, and it's like, is that Gene talking? Is that Dark Phoenix talking? It is not clear to me. Um, and then she has this fight with, with Professor X. And she says, you sound almost guilty, as well you should. You unleashed my latent telepathic ability. You set in motion the chain of events that created first Phoenix and then Dark Phoenix. Behold your creation. And this is really interesting, the art also um, in this battle between Gene and um, Professor X. Um, And he's able to, uh, he, X, Professor X triumphs and is able to kind of um, put these psychic blocks, I'm not using the right terminology, in place. So she returns to being Gene. But I was bummed. I kind of, again, that's my phrase for this sequence. I, I wanted her to you know challenge uh, xavier on all all that he's done call you know um I, yeah i was a little disappointed because i found him a, he's kind of condescending so you know yeah well and it's surprising a lot of crap like oops i wasn't actually dead that was just a training exercise you know like I don't know. <laughs> he's so weird i mean they've gotten more and more into that over the years too that he's yeah. not a He's not a benevolent character, Professor X. Right. He's sort of a by any means necessary kind of a guy. Would you you connect with that, though? I think of you as someone that hungers for a joy and rapture beyond all comprehension. Do you feel connection to that? I, um, I you know, again, when I was reading this as a, in my younger days, and even now, I, I, I connect with um, Gene's, like, desire to be more than and to be able to have that sort of righteous anger and not be and this is interesting because in the next one she'll be marvel girl again mm-hmm. like you know sort of trapped in this role of um the being defined as like the female member of the x-men the original x-men and not a fully formed individual in your own right so i definitely um appreciate and connect with this idea of wanting to be more than just a stereotype. And so, yeah, I, I think I really appreciated that and still do obviously again, not, not killing people, but just that, that I, I deserve to be more than, and not be defined by um, like, Oh, a lot of, a lot of times she's defined by her relationship to other people. 
Like she's, is she going to choose Wolverine or is she going to choose Cyclops? Mm-hmm. Like the love triangle. Well, who cares? Just, you know, I mean, like I wanted to have her own thing and not be defined by being the female member of the X-Men or the love interest in the love triangle. And so giving her this storyline, I think, um, made her a lot more relatable to me, even in her darkness, um, the way that she's fighting back and fighting Wingard's control and fighting with X, uh, Professor X, who's had a lot of control over her. So, yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know. Well, I guess that's maybe the big question when viewing this as an allegorical narrative is like, where's the corruption coming from? Is it coming from inside? Is that the consequence of her, getting in touch with her full capability, which is uh, not an allegory I want to subscribe to, or is it an external, is she so tampered with by these other, these men that it it corrupts her own ability to express her powers? Right. And I think that not exactly in those terms, but I think those were some of the debates that were going on in the, in the writer's room and editorial at Marvel, you know, because I think there was a, faction who were saying she was being controlled this was dark phoenix and therefore she's not responsible for these terrible acts and then jim shooter was saying no she destroyed planet Mm -hmm. that's that's has to have some intense consequences but we're getting towards the end what's your read just as a scholarly reader of this Uh, you know i again i think you can find evidence for um the different positions, because sometimes she does refer to Dark Phoenix having these feelings. And and then other times she, it's like I first person. And then of course we have the knowledge later that it's not her at all. Um, But as a, in my initial reading, I did feel like Jean Grey was being punished for being fully who she is. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a personal reading and you can definitely, there are other readings, which I think are equally valid, but it felt like she was being punished for embracing her full potential. So, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't argue with it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, No, you can. And again, I think there are different readings and I've read other people who have very different thoughts and have very valid arguments. And I think you can pull all kinds of things out of the text, but I'm speaking as particularly calling back, hearkening back to my own reading um, as a, as a young girl, just like, Oh, well, if you fight back against these men who will control you and oppress you, a, you probably can't control your rage. Maybe you'll become a homicidal person. Like if you express righteous anger, the end result is you become a horrible person and then you have to be destroyed or destroy yourself. So is it a a cautionary story? I mean, how do you, what do you do with that? Well, I think that, you know, uh, I read other characters, you know, like you didn't get to do anything with it really because it ended for six Mm -hmm. years. Um, And, you know, it's like, Oh, that's, that's not cool. Um, and then, and then it came back several years later. So that's one of the th- reasons why I was, I, I have a sort of love hate relationship with the sequence, this storyline, cause it is so iconic. It's so interesting and so well built, but at the same time as a reader, it, um, you know, and especially as a girl, young girl reading it, I was like, Oh, that doesn't feel great. You know, personally. 
Do you feel like they should have gone in a different direction with it? Well, you're going to ask me about what I would do, like, or what, see, you know, what I was thinking. I, I, again, we'll get to the end, but I do kind of wish that maybe she, they'd gone with the other ending so that um, she could have explored that more instead of just dying and becoming another person and sort of being like, Ooh, that never happened. Um, you know, if they had taken her powers and she was able to think through all those, I kind of wish that she had gone to therapy and been able to work <laughs> through her issues, you know, like, and define herself as herself. So basically the answer is like, um, the fate of Phoenix in therapy or something like, you know, I just want her to, to be able to work through it. Um, and when you just kill her like that, she can't do that. So, um, I think I want her to go to therapy. I want her to not define herself by relationships, find herself. And, um, maybe, maybe she dates Dazzler. I don't know. Oh you know? yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I don't know. Like you don't need Logan. You don't need Scott. Yeah. You know? Who knows? So, well, I think, yeah. I think the stakes get bolstered so much again when she destroys the sun. Like, what if she had killed all the Hellfire Club, which would be yeah. dramatic, but not anything larger scale than anything we've seen Wolverine do. Right. And then you go like, hey, Gene, we got to we got to work on this, you know? No, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, in the history of comics, I mean, heroes are doing uh, dastardly deeds all the time. Like, you yeah. know, Wolverine just, you know, murdered half the people in the Hellfire Club. Yeah. And we're like, whatever. Um, but I think you're making an interest, a very important distinction. She destroyed a whole planet of innocent people, which yeah. as, you know, Jim Shooter, Shooter points out, you can't just undo that or just gloss over that. I guess there's a scale of, of tragedy in the comics universe. Although, you know, there are redemption arcs for a lot of what we might consider irredeemable characters. But it's really like a zero to 500. It's like, it's like if she had taken over a whole country and become a fascist dictator, that would have been really bad, but it's a solar system. It's like, it's, it's just, yeah, I know you're absolutely right. In in the course of like three pages, she goes from being like, like, no mom, I'm fine. And then it's like, Oh no, wait, this is right after, but you know what I mean? There's like this, Yes, it is yeah. the trajectory. I don't know though. I do. I do. Ultimately, I think it's Jean's parents' fault. I think yeah. we should blame the parents yeah. and really uh, dissect yeah. what their role in this is. So Jean's parents are there after she's been um, defeated by Charles Xavier, and then they all disappear. Yeah, we don't know where they go. And then we get into the last issue, one thirty-seven. So yeah, cover of one thirty-seven yeah. might might be the most iconic. It's a yeah. great cover. I don't know what they're reaching for, but it's so great as a composition, just like to guide your eye, her art, outstretched arm and the laser blast. It's just an interesting image with the the earth in the background. Yes. And I love the point of view um, of this shot of Cyclops and uh, Jean Grey, because you're kind of below them, looking up at them, fighting with the blasts and the earth in the background they're artfully distressed uniforms ripped just so to look (laughs) you know i i don't know how that's one of her powers is keeping her uniform on even though it's it's basically shredded at this point but it is a uh fascinating image and then we come to the watcher with his little little sweat socks on to tell us (laughs) what we we should think about all of this about phoenix 
I think the Watcher to me kind of seals the deal on Marvel Comics. It's like such a unique, weird <laughs> idea. And he's not a hero or a villain. He's just like this yeah. entity. This is also, I think, the I mean, it's always that you know, you know, some stuff's gonna happen when the watcher shows up, right? That's sort of become the trope. But this is like the one time the watcher shows up and he actually doesn't intervene. He's usually like, oh, you know, Reed Richards, uh, I have this friend, this other watcher, and he's got a problem that he knows that Galactus is coming. And what do you think he should do? You know, like he's always sort of subtly guiding things. But this is where he's like, no, I'm just here. He has a great uh, talking to with Wolverine we'll get to. But other than that, he just happens to be in the blue area of the moon. Yeah, he's just there. Yeah, we got the watcher. And then you've got um, all the Shi'ar folks who are like, saying yeah gene you need to account for what you have done uh and they're also just like you're too powerful like you can't you're a threat to all existence which is not wrong right so and then that's the thing right that the um the shiar the royal guard or whatever they're called they're like uh Dave Cockrum was going to do the Legionnaires, was it? Or the Legion of Superheroes. Mm -hmm. And he created all these characters and then ended up doing X-Men instead. And they became, those characters were plugged in. That's correct, right? Some version of that? I I believe so. But again, I don't have encyclopedic knowledge, but I believe so. We're both, uh, I'm sure people are really enjoying listening to our our vague recollections. I'm like, oh, yeah. There's someone who's listening to this like, ah! (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. Oh, it's it's my fault. I'm I'm supposed to come prepared. And then I like the uh, intergalactic council too. You get the uh, supreme intelligence representing the Kree and the Scroll Queen, and they're all kind of having meetings over Zoom about what yeah, to do. It does. It's right. They're having Zoom meetings to figure out what to do, and then they decide to have a. I love the duel at dawn. Yeah. Right. So that's what Professor X challenges them to a duel. So then it becomes about the. Uh, Basically, the uh, X-Men versus the Royal Guard, right? Right. And you have all these moments where the different X-Men decide whether they want to fight alongside Jean. And they have these little individual moments where they get to reflect on their relationship with her. And they all, of course, um, decide to fight with her. And she decides she's going to kind of revert or devolve into her Marvel Girl costume to do this final battle on, on the moon. I think Claremont is really good at interludes. You get mm-hmm. characters taking showers. Everybody's naked at some point. Is uh, yeah. But everyone's just kind of speculating. I think um, I like how uh, Wolverine and Beast are on the same page. They both have that weird pointy hair. Yeah. And I'm looking at Wolverine's helmet. And I think you might want to consider, Susan, just starting to wear a mask or a helmet that's shaped like your hair. I think that <laughs> you could I think you could pull that off. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, it's good. I'll, I'll start working on that for, for Halloween, maybe. Just just think, of, or just all the time. Just all the time. Of, just think right. about it. That's true. I mean, you know, why not? Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people could pull it off, but <laughs> you and Wolverine. So yeah, then you get, I, I think there's something cool about Jean and her original cause. I don't know if it's just a nostalgia thing or what, but she says, I'm going to kind of finish how I started. There's just something interesting about it to me. Well, it's definitely nostalgic. It's definitely pulling on that nostalgia of going back. And it, I think, raises the stakes for her dead because you're seeing her 
not as Dark Phoenix, but as this character that we love. I mean, it's, it's not really her original, original costume because they right. have those ones where they're all matchy-matchy. But yeah. um, there's like a, we, I think as readers romanticize her as, as Marvel Girl, which is also a diminutive, you know, mm-hmm. like girl as opposed to woman, as opposed to a phoenix, as opposed to having title Jean Grey. Um, and so I think it softens us toward her um, because, you know, we want to feel sad when she dies. Um, and I think it, it is effective in that way. And then they have the, the big battle scenes. Yeah. in the blue area of the moon, they're just fighting for a long time. Just Double issue. Of, you get a lot of fighting action. Yeah. And uh, just various, but yeah, then uh, Wolverine kind of ends up in the watchers living room yeah. And the watchers just like, get out of here. And that's really all that happened. It's just interesting. I don't know why. It just was really interesting to me to see Wolverine be scolded by the watcher. I just liked that moment. It It's delightful and, and uh, odd. Maybe odd because, you know, maybe it's delightful because it's so odd. Like, what? what? Yeah. Why is this relevant? What's happening? We're in the middle of a battle. Like, why? Why? Why is um, this happening? Fun. Yeah. I also like, too, that Marvel has, like, consistent fictional locations like if you go to the blue, blue area of the moon you're gonna see the watcher if you go to latveria here's what the government's like and it's run by this guy and mm-hmm. it's a cool mm-hmm. thing about marvel it's more of a mess i think now than it used to be but i really like this kind of cohesive era of established things and mm-hmm. few enough titles that you can kind of say like this happened this month like this was affected this affected everyone in some way so yeah just fighting 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 for a million and again you get kind of an abrupt conclusion too we just kind of get a lot of fighting not a super clear direction for a long time colossus punches gene gray in the face that was a little bit intense they do the reverse fastball special where wolverine throws colossus at her because they're on the moon and and it's a sense like and and she sort of comes to her consciousness because he's smacked her i think yeah yeah so that's weird. But I again, at the same time, she has the power to destroy the universe. So because she because she becomes Dark Phoenix again, she yeah. changes from Marvel Girl into Dark Phoenix and the battle essentially changes, obviously. And uh, um, Colossus punches her and she's like, oh, thanks. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then again, it's another one that just the page layout you know it's not a splash page where she gets so she just knows where like a space laser is somehow and gets it to blast i mean i think the intention of the sequence is good that that's she kind of finds a way to set herself up to get killed and then none of the x-men have to do it i think that's kind of important Mm -hmm. but um it happens i don't know i guess i wanted like uh, again like more more page i you know cyclops has a monologue at the end in three panels but just seems like uh we had about 20 pages of fighting and i would have given this sequence a few more pages it would be nice to slow down because uh it does happen very quickly she even says you know it's better this way quick clean final yeah. i love you scott and then, you know, she gets zapped. And then he says, you planned this moment from the moment you landed on the moon and so forth. And he goes on his mini monologue before the watcher kind of 
brings it all together. Yeah. But he really like explain in his grief, he's like, Oh, okay. So you knew that there were traps and you read everyone's minds and uh, he's like explaining to the reader what they just saw in his. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. It's a very text heavy, um, you know, the speech uh, balloons are very extensive in the very last and they're, they're small panels. There's three on the bottom there and they're, they're small, but it's full of text of just, Cyclops saying, okay, this is just what you saw. She planned it. And then she did this. And then you did this. And then he's like, oh, Gene, again, soap opera, Gene, you know? Oh, Gene. But I like the pull away, the camera mm-hmm. pulls yeah. back. And I yeah. mean, the, the emotions there, it's expressed. But yeah, I would have decompressed that a little bit personally. Mm-hmm. It was up to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. And then the watcher's like, man, that was some heavy shit. And that's, that's it. <laughs> that's the end. Right. And then you're just looking at the planet like, well. And then the the line that people, you know, they cite, you know, Jean Grey could have lived to become a god, but it was more important to her that she die a human. Mm. Um, and again, I, as a reader, I'm like, really? That was the only option? Like, weren't there more options? I, I wonder how many great comic storylines we could apply this premise of going to therapy to, you know, I think. So many. Batman. Oh, I know. Uh, oh, so many. I mean, obviously, we won't get to into the, like the Harlot Quinn element, but I mean, like, there's so many uh, folks that really would benefit. Well, in in fictional worlds and and reality, but you know, it would be nice actually to see more of it in comics. Maybe it would make it you know normalize it more, and you know, but and see people working through grief and trauma and problems and so forth um yes would you want to read those comics though i mean would you rather see people fighting on the moon or would you rather (laughs) (laughs) well i mean maybe it doesn't have to be either either or because they do have weird interludes or just like moments of you know quiet and stillness or or maybe it's like just showing them behaving differently i mean you don't have to have extended sequences of you know showing therapy it's like you don't show people brushing their teeth very often either mm-hmm. but it's important so you know i don't know i just think you know it seems like it plays into the storyline does play into the you know either or either you're the good girl or you're the dark phoenix mm-hmm. either you're marvel girl or dark phoenix then in, in literature words, we talk about like the virgin whore dichotomy, mm-hmm. like, like, uh, and, and ultimately she's like, well, I have to kill myself because I can't be both or I can't have these different elements coexist. And so, and I can't take the risk of having this, this side of me become too powerful and too dark. And so, I mean, uh, again, I'm speaking from, you know, both sort of the perspective as of uh, reading it as a young girl and as a, an adult. I'm like, shouldn't there be more options? Um, and maybe that's what um, hopefully we see more of is, you know, in comics today, more characters that have, um, you know, the ability to have these complicated um lives and personalities and not be punished for it. And I mean, obviously, obviously you should be punished. Right. You know, for destroying a solar system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you think of more contemporary examples that have a better balance than this? Um, well, you know, I think I've been, I've been reading a lot of Ms. Marvel lately and I do appreciate the way that, um, 
she's been written in terms of, and, and she's a teenage character, but mm-hmm. sort of um, having a well-rounded personality and not um, playing into stereotypes. But I do also think that there's reclamations of other, there's attempts to like bring older characters and, and give them more nuance. And, and sometimes, you know, that means rewriting history or retconning things mm-hmm. and so forth, which I think is an interesting uh, process. And again, I'm mentioning Carol Danvers about sort of sometimes rewriting her history to give her more agency um, in that history, which I think is an interesting process. When you're writing a book about Carol Danvers, aren't you? Right. About Ms. About Ms. Marvel's many incarnations. So yeah. I, she's top of mind because I'm, interested in her origins as like this sort of moment um, in sort of the women's liberation movement, that second wave feminism, but and also in this, you know, because Carol Danvers was Ms. Marvel and then we have a new Ms. Marvel and thinking about, again, you're talking about the ways in which they both um, represent a historical moment, but also I think you see like in the Carol core movement and sort of the fan movements around um, Kamala Khan um, also they're, creating change also um, these storylines have an impact on real world culture. So um, yeah. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, thinking about dark Phoenix, uh, I have not seen the movies, but from what I have heard, this storyline is so complex that it just doesn't translate well. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I try not to talk about the movies too much on this podcast because yeah. yeah, it's about yeah, yeah. comics, but I do think that um, it's been done poorly twice. But I think that with what we've seen made into movies based on comics at this point, I don't believe that. And they could make it two or three movies if they wanted. I think it would be fine. I just think that they really blew it both times. And that's not it doesn't mean it can't be done. Well, and it's interesting. And again, I, I'm like, well, I should speak authoritatively about a film I've never seen, but you know, like I haven't seen the, these films, but I guess I'm thinking about the way that um, Carol Danvers has evolved and, and sort of changing her history. And I'm wondering if maybe there's a way to go back to the dark Phoenix or maybe it's too precious. Maybe it shouldn't be revisited, but I don't know if there's a way to, go back to it and, and think about it. In New yeah, York. it was revisited in uh, Grant Morrison's run. He did a whole take on it and then Jean dies again. And then she's right. dead for, I don't know, 10 years or something. I think she was dead longer that time than the first time. So there is sort of like a, <clears throat> you can seem like you can always take a mulligan if you want on superhero comics, you know? Absolutely. Like, I mean, that's one of the, the joys of, or I mean, may not be your opinion, but the joys of being able to sort of start over again and again. So, yeah. Um, but it, it has been really fun to revisit them. I had forgotten, um, the humor, uh, a lot of the humor and the, um, the little interludes and those moments of whimsy and the amazing art and the complexity of how it built over years and years. And I think mm-hmm. rereading it, it really brought that to my attention. And the ways that the, the, the art and the text work together, um, you know, the, that makes comics so special because we get to see Kitty Pride and hear them and, and the, the awful accents. But, you know, and, and, but, you know, you get the humor of Wolverine and you get to see, I mean, get to see Jean Grey 
and sort of that beautiful darkness and fully inhabiting that power, which is really amazing. So um, I have really enjoyed revisiting it, even in its, you know, complicated messiness. It's definitely um, worth rereading and thinking about. I think the complicated messiness is is one of the things that makes it worth rereading, though, too, you know, that it's interesting. I mean, X-Men, I think, is good. One of the qualities of X-Men is it's it's uncommon in American comics that it's less about good and evil and more about kind of moral gray areas or, you know, who is right, Professor X or Magneto. They're both really flawed and they kind of switch in and out who's the the voice of this movement and that it's... uh, I like that about the X-Men that characters kind of switch allegiance and have different eras. And it's, 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 it's more ambiguous. It's not, I mean, the humans are always evil in X-Men, but like the uh, what's the right approach to this, you know, is apocalypse doing the right thing or I don't know. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So any, any other final thoughts on this? I feel like it's pretty well encapsulated. No, I, 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 really grateful that you've encouraged me to revisit it and think it it's been very nostalgic for me to think about you know what it was like to read it as a as a girl and then thinking about it and overthinking it now um, but it's been a lot of a lot of fun to to get to revisit these um great x-men comics so thank you oh thank you so i got a couple couple of prompts for you before we wrap up okay. one is um <clears throat> if you could well, you don't do any illustration stuff, right? No. no. Have, you, have you written any comics before? No, I write really academic books that very few people read. So. Do you have a your that's that's put that on your business card? Yeah. Uh, and do you have um, a fantasy of writing comics at all? No, no. Oh. I mean, I don't like. It's not like. Uh, it's not. No, I don't. I don't know. I think I'm too verbose. I think. Uh, I, I don't think I would be good at it. I think you're, you're like too, Chris Claremont after he came back. Um, <laughs> I think I would be too verbose and 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 go on long rants. Um, so so no, but um, well, so the the question yeah. at yeah. the end of the show is yeah, if yeah, yeah. you could have a a run, a free reign run on something, uh, mm-hmm. what would it be? You could also pick. You could also pick a writer artist team on a book. That's neither of them are you if you want, but it's like, what's your dream run? So it's usually like, what would you, the guest make, but it could also be, what would you most like to read that someone else made? Okay. Um, I, uh, I said at the opening that I have a great affection for rogue. So Mm -hmm. I would like to write a limited series. Again, I'm, I'd be terrible at it and only I could read it because it would be shameful and embarrassing, but I would like to write a limited series rogue. Um, and I, I don't know artists. I have a huge fan of Phil Noto, um, just that amazing art that he does. Um, but I also, I love, um, Adrian Alfano, what he does with backgrounds in terms of um, telling the story through all these tiny little moments. And I also have a, a, a real fondness for like the, the Scotty Young, super cute, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I like those too. So I don't know. Maybe we could have variant covers since sure. it's raining, right? I, I think you'd probably be required to. I don't okay. think you can okay. not have for my covers. limited series. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so I think I would do something like that. And we, you, with Roe, you have to have the awkward phonetic a- accents. Oh, right? yeah. 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 
she's right? she's a yeah. I got to call everyone sugar. Yeah, that's her. Yeah, with an H, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tried. To, I tried to pronounce it correctly. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll struggle. All right. Well, I'll look forward to it. I uh, you might want to work on your your pitch a little bit because you really tried to talk me out of uh, you getting hired to do that. But I would read it. So. Keep it in mind. So uh, what are you working on? Where can I find you online? All those questions. You know, I I, I think I probably have told you, Ryan, I am a, a hermit and I'm not on social media. Oh, but... good for you. That's why you're you're that's why you don't need therapy. I, think. Uh, yeah. I am. Um, yeah, I am not on social media, but you can look me up at Portland State. My email is there. It's Susan Kirtley. So my email is skirtly Ooh. at pdx.edu. And I welcome questions, comments, and, uh, um, you know, I'm at Portland State. I'm working on, a, as you alluded to, I'm working on a book on um, Ms. Marvel in her various incarnations. I'm working on a project with my friends Charles Hatfield and Craig Fisher, which is going to be an anthology on Kirby, which is going to be... On Jack Kirby? Fun. Jack Kirby, yeah. So what do you mean an anthology? Oh, so it's going to be um, a bunch of essays, of academic essays about Kirby, but... Um, they're really going to, I say academic, but this is going to be a really fun book about Jack Kirby. Um, you know, uh, a lot of love for Jack Kirby. So anyway, that is also on the horizon. And then of course, I, as you said, I'm the director of comics at Portland State. So I'm always trying to um, have more programming and more classes and more curriculum around comics at um, Portland State. So yeah, do you, you want to say anything about that program? Sure. Um, you know, Portland State, um, we have a comic study certificate and you can um, study either as an undergraduate or a graduate student or even a post-bac student if you're in the community and you just want to take comics classes, you can do that at Portland State. Uh, and, you know, the, the certificate itself is six classes with one required class, but people can just come and take classes if they, if they want to. And we have one thing, I, as you know, that I love about being in Portland is we have a really great comics community. Mm -hmm. So we have professional internships with places like Dark Horse Comics. And we have lots of great comics instructors like you, Ryan. Oh, gosh. And then we also have folks like um, uh, Brian Bendis and David Walker and Douglas Walk, who mm -hmm. is and has an encyclopedic knowledge of Marvel Comics and folks like that um, who teach comics as well as faculty across campus. So you can take classes in manga or Franco-Belgian comics. or So we have a really nice... Um, I think balance of sort of the scholarly study of comics as well as comics creation classes that you can take. Um, so if, if people have questions or are interested, you can always ask me and I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about comics, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Uh, it was my pleasure. And with that, we'll bring this episode of the runs to a close. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, my website is ohyesverynice.com. That's O-H-Y-E-S-V-E-R-Y-N-I-C-E.com. Also, I'm working on a comics biography of Muhammad Ali. You can learn more about this project at patreon.com slash ohyesverynice, where you can subscribe to both digital and print Editions. I can also be contacted at ohyesverynice at gmail.com. You can send me episode suggestions for the runs. And if you send me an email saying you heard about it on this podcast, I will send you a free digital copy of one of the chapters of the Ali comic. 
Home base for this podcast is theruns.blogspot.com, but it can also be downloaded or streamed on all platforms where podcasts are available. All the best ones. Please rate and review the show and share this podcast on social media and, more importantly, in person. Thanks so much, and see you next time on The Runs.